Okay, okay. Welcome back to Leftist Labor History. This is the uh, this is episode seven. It's gonna be the last episode of actual information, um, and this is about neoliberalism. So we're gonna go from 1980 to present day, and um, this is it's currently 2021 when I'm recording this. I am going to uh, come back for one more kind of episode, and that's going to be a bit of a wrap up. And we're going to we're going to discuss some some ideas for the future. But this is going to be the last one in the series that will um, have any kind of facts or data. It can be a little bit tricky to pull history out of you know something that's really still in the works and still shaping up. But my approach with this episode, so I want to talk about uh, neoliberalism, which is, we're in the neoliberal era currently. And I want to talk about Silicon Valley because I see Silicon Valley as kind of the the proving ground for this uh, neoliberal agenda, neoliberal um, idea. So let's talk about what that means. So at the end of the cold war so when the berlin well when the berlin wall fell and the soviet union uh disbanded that was kind of that was the end of the cold war that was the end of this competition um you know there was literally a competition um between the united states um and western europe you know the west versus the first world versus the Soviet Union, um, the second world, which is the communist, um, the communist part of, of the world. And w- when that competition was, you know, ostensibly resolved with, with capitalism uh, winning, now we enter a new era. Um, so a, a few things are, are, are happening during this era. For, for one, so uh, at least at the beginning of this era, there was this there was this big selling point that neoliberalism was the best way to achieve you know global prosperity. And in the 90s, especially, there was a lot of of kind of um, celebration of of you know having resolved this right. Uh, Francis Fukuyama is a, is a scholar who is kind of infinite infamous now for writing a book called the end of history and he posited that history was over like capitalism won history <laughs> like we're just this is just the era of peace and prosperity now um and then uh 9-11 happened in, in 2001 and, and just blew his whole thesis out of the water and since then every you know it's just kind of yeah yeah the end of history sure um but in the 90s in in the west there was there was all of this there was a lot of confidence and um i want to talk about that i want to talk about i'm using silicon valley as an example of this of really this hubris um and the way in which you know capitalism uh buys into its own mythology and um but, but first, I want to talk about the mythology. I want to point out the ideology. I want to point out the mythology. I want to point out 
um, all of the things that are are you know for the for the sake of marketing and for selling this uh, neoliberalism. Um, so yeah, so in in 1980, Ronald Reagan is elected, um, and he his whole thing is this morning in America. He's looking forward to this revitalization of U.S. industry. So what's happening in the 70s, um, you know, late kind of late 60s into the 70s is, uh, you know, the United States had dominated certain industries, um, you know, kind of heavy industry automobiles, for instance, and the rest of the world starts to catch up. East Asia starts to catch up. Um, Japan is, is, you know, pumping out really good cars and people are starting to buy Japanese cars. Um, uh, China and Korea, right. Are, are, are starting to, um, build up their industrial capacity. Um, West, Western Europe, which had been decimated by world war two, uh, partly with the help of, of the United States through the Marshall Project, you know, they have re, they're starting to reconstruct their countries and their industries. And now, you know, Germany is a big competitor. Um, and so the, the, the United States is facing the, this competition and uh, capitalists are blaming unions. But for whatever reason, right, the, U the U.S. Is, is, is starting to lag in terms of manufacturing. And so people are... are you know, honestly, people, some people are, are all too eager to, you know, write uh, the obituary for U.S. manufacturing. Um, again, going back to this idea of deindustrialization, right? So a lot of people are trying to uh, move away from manufacturing and heavy industry, partly because it's it has been controlled by unions. Um, and so Reagan is, is, uh, is kind of casting about... And then Clinton after him, and, and when he's elected in '92, um, they're they're part of they're they're part of the same neoliberal consensus. Sorry, let me define that a little bit better. So partly uh, when I when I say that I'm talking about this era, so after the fall of the Soviet Union, but this is kind of marked by by certain um, by certain preferences, right? By by certain characteristics. Um, I mean, the overall idea is that liberal markets are going to set the tone for how we we're basically going to we're going to order our society around liberalized markets. And that's 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 just going to be the way it is. Um, um, whereas, you know, before with the Soviet Union, you have a competing model of central planning. Um Basically, there's, I mean, even in the U.S., right, there is kind of a debate going on about what is what is the best way for broad prosperity? What is the best way to generate like a, a good, prosperous, wealthy society? And on one hand, you do have, you know, you have this idea of central planning. You have this idea that wealth and value comes from labor. That's 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 Marxist. That's communist. Right. So on the extreme end, you have the Soviet Union, you have China. But then, I mean, that that is still up for debate in the United States as well. And in the neoliberal era, everybody's I mean, the capitalists are saying, well, it doesn't come from labor. That's ridiculous. I mean, it, it in a sense, this is this is a new version of an old tale, right? This capitalists have always said, 
we're the ones, right? We're the, we're the ones with money and ideas. We're the ones who, um, who create wealth for, on behalf of, I mean, this is magnanimous of us, right? To create wealth on behalf of the, of our whole society. And neoliberalism is just an updated version of that same narrative. Um, and I'm going to, I'm kind of going to, I'm going to kind of talk about how it's really not all that new. I mean, it's updated, but it's, it's the same story. Um, neoliberalism is also marked. Uh, so, I mean, some, some kind of new things are, uh, you know, the extent of global free trade is, is kind of new. So we get globalization. We also get increased, uh, financialization and financialization is, is, a tendency of of, um, of 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 companies of firms to get a big portion of their profits from from finance from uh, from lending from you know collecting interest um, etc. That sort of thing and and more and more of the economy is going towards towards finance towards Wall Street so to speak. There's also this idea that kind of liberal democracy has has won the day. So part of neoliberalism is like, hey, we're going to put away all the all the bigotry and prejudice. I'm going to talk about that. Um, but anyway, so these are some of the characteristics of of the age that we live in, um, at least in terms of on, along the terms of the people who are in favor of it. And um, so, yeah, so in, in 1980 with, with Reagan, Silicon Valley is, so Silicon Valley is, is uh, you know, earns that, that nickname in the 70s. Um, and then it really starts to heat up in the 80s and in the 90s. By the late 90s, you get the dot-com boom. But I want to go back further in time. I want to go back to 1939. So in 1939, two Stanford-trained electrical engineers, Bill Hewlett and David Packard, started Hewlett-Packard in a garage in Palo Alto. Um, okay, so I'm just going to lay out this. I'm going to lay out, you know, the wonderful, illustrious history of Silicon Valley, and then I'm going to going to go back and kind of unpack it and analyze it a little bit, right? Okay, so for starters, so okay, so you have the you have the founding of Hewlett Packard in 1939, and then World War II happens. So let's skip ahead. Let's we'll just kind of leapfrog World War II. In 1951, uh, Frederick Terman, who was uh, the professor of, of Hewlett Packard and several other students who ended up starting electronics companies, so Frederick Terman at Stanford University um, sets up Stanford Research Institute. And this is this is this is part of campus. Um, it's what we would now call a business incubator. So this is, you know, the university is lending a lot of institutional support to get these companies off the ground. And Terman is kind of like Frederick Terman is kind of the mentor. Um, and so he's he's considered the fa the father of Silicon Valley. Um, the another of the quote unquote fathers of Silicon Valley. Just as an aside is uh, William Shockley. So Shockley's contribution was developing the silicon semiconductor, whereas before, germanium was used in these semiconductors. Um, silicon is much cheaper. It is comes from sand, essentially. 
And so um, the reason why we have these devices that are more or less disposable, you know, cheap enough that we just we just throw them away when their life's their lifespan is is over is because the conduct the, the chip is made from a, a very cheap material, silicon as opposed to germanium. So Stanford Institute of Research, um, an important part about this is that Stanford and, and this and, and this institute, they are getting defense contracts out the ass, right? So the United States uh, federal government is giving them all sorts of money to do research. Hey, we, we want, we're in this arms race with the Soviet Union. We have unlimited amounts of money to spend to win this competition with, with communism. So Stanford really, um, really becomes a world-class university based on all this money that's coming from the Department of, of Defense and all of these defense contracts. Silicon Valley would not be what it is without Stanford and without, um, without the federal government, you know, just loading it up with cash, just all sorts of money. So, um, so in the fifties, sixties, Silicon Valley is, uh, the Santa Clara Valley and it's full of orchards, right? Like it's, it's, it's still pretty rural at that point. Um, San Jose is, is, you know, like a, a, a cow town more or less. Um, and there's just orchards and there's canneries and that's, that's the big industry. Um, by the seventies, uh, the electronics industry, uh, begins to take off the eighties, you get, um, you know, the personal computer, um, you know, you get Apple and then by the nineties, you get the commercial internet in the early nineties and the spectacular dot com, uh, bust in the early two thousands. And somehow that, that did not shake us from our, of being enamored with, with, uh, tech companies and, you know, slick, um, tech executives, people who pose as the inventors of this wonderful, you know, innovative, um, tech, uh, whatever. So that's, that's Silicon Valley in a nutshell. The reason I'm, I'm, I'm laying this out is because, um, this is this is a this is a conservative right so we don't think of when we think of california when we think of of silicon even when we think of silicon valley we think of like hey man it's like laid back and like people are are you know um eating mushrooms or whatever between you know on the weekends um, this is actually a very conservative environment that this is born out of in terms of it's anti-labor so um, Hewlett Packard, Hewlett and Packard are, they are part of, you know, these trade associations that get together and they talk about how to thwart unionizing. Um, they do not like unions, right? Um, but also all of this, all of this money, all their money is coming from the, the United States government at the height of the cold war. So you really are not going to have much tolerance for anything that appears left wing because you do not want to risk, you know, you don't want to interrupt the gravy train. Um, and so this is really, this is kind of a, a foundational principle of, of Silicon Valley is, is, you know, do whatever you want on your free time, but, 
when you come into work, like you're, I mean, you're, you are, you're a capitalist. Um, and in fact, so the reason I, I mentioned, uh, Hewlett Packard is th that company becomes, becomes kind of famous for their management strategy, which is called, they call it the HP way. And it, it's, it's part of like the welfare capitalism, right. From, um, from the early 1900s where you're, you're, you're fighting unionism by, by treating your employees well, more or less, but there's also, I mean, this, this sets the stage for the kind of classic tech company culture. People are, 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 you know, free to kind of explore their own ideas. They're incentivized, right. To come up to be innovative at work. Like HP doesn't want people to come in and clock in and, and, and do their tasks and go home. They want people to become obsessed with work. They want people to work these long days on, you know, their, their projects that they really care about. And there's a, and the, and, you know, they get rewarded for that kind of thing. That's the HP way. Um, and then that's, that's going to carry through into, you know, really into, into contemporary, uh, Silicon Valley culture for, for, you know, the engineers, at least for the white collar jobs. Um, also, so this idea of, of starting a company in your garage, which I mean, you, you know, HP Hewlett Packard was legitimately started in a garage, I guess, in Palo Alto, but this is going to, this is, this has this stronghold on the American imagination, right? Like this is like, this becomes, this becomes something that, you know, all of these other Silicon Valley companies are going to imitate. So whether or not you actually started in a garage with, with nothing, or whatever, you're going to tell everybody, like I started this company in my, in my mom's garage, right? We have, you know, these pictures of Jeff Bezos, um, you know, Apple was started in a garage or whatever. That's this kind of, whether or not, you know, that's factually true or, or, you know, genuinely true. Like the point is to show, like I did, I started from nothing. Everything that I created came out of my own brain. I had the ideas and just just I'm just fucking plucky and um I picked myself up by my bootstraps. And this is, you know, the same the this is the American story going back to the 1600s um before it was, you know, in the United States. This is a very fundamentally American idea and it's and it's been bullshit ever since, you know, after 1939. It's 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 PR essentially. Um, and we love it. We go nuts for this, you know? Oh my God. Like the, he started Amazon in his mom's garage. That's amazing. And, and whatever, you know, it's supposed to, to show how, you know, anyway, so this is, this is, this is, this is ideology. This is pure ideology. This is the idea that wealth comes from an idea. This is the idea that, you know, wealth plus like some venture capital that is, that is going to, that is going to power the economy. It doesn't come from labor, you know, manufacturing is, is, is moribund and is, is dominated by labor unions and it's, we can't compete with, you know, the Asian tigers. So this is the, this is the mentality in the, in the eighties and going into the nineties and it's, this survives, you know, the dot-com crash just to clarify this is why i'm talking about this you know like 
in in terms of labor history, this is why I'm talking about this is because this is an inflection point where the country has decided that wealth does not come from labor pretty decisively, right? Like the Soviet Union is dead. You know, we've broken the power of these big unions, which which thank God. Right. Um, And now we're free to have this information economy. This is an economy based on innovation and ideas and nothing can touch us, you know, like we're, we're unstoppable now. So in 1990, the United States overhauled its immigration um, laws for the first time in, in a few decades. I think the last time had been 1965. So this is kind of underwork. This is underway. And Silicon Valley is like, yes, immigration reform. We want uh, we want skilled workers. We want, you know, electrical and computer engineers from South Asia and East Asia. We want to be able to tap into those labor markets and bring people over here. Um, and, and liberals are like, yes, you know, like we're a big melting pot. This is great. Like we're going to show people that we're not racist because we're going to hire, you know, um, you know, Taiwanese, uh, engineers at our companies or whatever. And uh, part of the 1990 Immigration Act was was establishing this this visa category for um, for skilled quote unquote right um, skilled technical workers that are going to come work in in um, yeah, I mean this applies to the whole country right but Silicon Valley is 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 going to avail itself of 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 these. Um, of these of these workers that have been trained in their home countries this is like hundreds of people a year to get these visas um you know tens of thousands of people a year are are coming from central america from southeast asia um and they're working in low-wage jobs so right there we have kind of an indication <laughs> like somebody's somebody's got to continue to do work in this new economy right um like nobody's nobody's really under the illusion that people you know don't need to work anymore like we still need you know you still need uh auto mechanics and you still need um you know janitors and or or custodians and 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 so on you still need all these service industry jobs and in fact one of the selling you know in the in the business literature one of the selling points of silicon valley is like hey every tech job you create creates five more jobs down the road um and those jobs are all service industry jobs you know more or less right but let's look at so okay so let's look at the typical um computer engineer so let's say okay i go to school i graduate i get a job working for um apple let's say or i get a job working for google and i you know i know how to program um in in you know x y and z languages i know this kind of software that's kind of what my where my training training is and you know after a few years of work experience i'm making some pretty good money well, every few years, a new programming language is developed and, and people start to go that way. You know, software changes. It's, 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 it's a real churn. 
So at that point, I have a couple of options. If I'm if I'm really you know plucky and like don't have a family or any other demands on my time, I'm gonna work my 50, 60 hours, 70 hours at Google, and I'm gonna go home and hit the books and learn that new programming programming language. And if I'm really just if I'm going after it, I can then shop my resume around and say. Like, hey, this is what I'm making, but I've, you know, I got these skills, I got this experience. Will you pay me more? Um, and if they give me an offer, I can go back to Google. I'm like, hey, match this, or I'm going to go over to this other place. There's a lot of opportunity. If you have, you know, a lot of time and you're and you're bright and you can pick up stuff. Um, now, let's say I have a family, or I'm taking care of my elder, elderly mother, or I have a disability, and I'm, you know, barely, you know, hitting that 45 hours a week at Google, Google or whatever. After a couple of years, um, you know, a new programming language comes out, and Google is like, hey, we really need somebody who, um, who knows Ruby, for instance. And I'm like, oh, well, I don't know Ruby, but like, I can learn it. Like, will you train me? And they're like, yeah, no thing. Yeah, we're not going to train you because they have the option. They are, they can outsource your job. They can hire somebody from India who knows the, you know, who has more up-to-date training that you don't have. Um, or, you know what I mean? Like you're, or you're just you're just out of luck, and you're you're gonna have to maybe pay, take a pay cut and find somewhere else. Anyway, they they they're done with you. They've used you up. Um, by the way, so if when they're hiring these people from India and from Taiwan, they're paying them a lot less, right? So if you're coming from India, you're getting a big pay raise, but you, I mean, the the the, the salary that that Google is paying you is is a lot less than you know, the, the person with American citizenship. Now let's say you're coming from India, you manage to get a visa, um, and you come to, you come work for Google, let's say, uh, you're making good money, right? It's worth it for you. But after a couple of years, again, um, you know, you're working long hours, things aren't all that great. You see people around you making more money than you. And you're like, well, how can I make more money? Well, you're kind of bound by visa requirements. So like your visa is, is really tied to your employer. So you don't really have the liberty because of all the, the process, the, the, the legal fees and the red tape. You can't really shop your resume around like uh, people with citizenship can. So you're, you're more or less stuck to your employer. So if you get a bad deal, luck of the draw, like tough, you know, tough luck. You're probably just going to um, just uh, going to going to write it out until your visa's up or, you know, until you're, you need a visa extension or whatever. Um, another thing is that statistically, so, so people have studied this and if you are not, so all of the really, really cushy, good jobs, the executive jobs, the marketing job, I mean, the, the sales jobs, the marketing jobs, that stuff goes to white men by and large, there are exceptions, but for the most part, those really cushy positions are reserved for white men. Um, and then a few white women here and there, right? Like, so, so look how progressive Silicon Valley is. Now there's like women in, in these executive, white women in these executive roles. Um, again, statistically speaking, there are exceptions. Um, 
so you're you're this Indian engineer. You're getting passed up for all of these really really lucrative jobs, and you're really just kind of there as as a workhorse, just just cranking out code. Now let's look at. So let's say that you are um, a Mexican American woman. So in, in we'll go back in time a little bit. You're you're work you're working in a cannery in this, in the fifties and the sixties in the Santa Clara Valley. It becomes Silicon Valley and all the jobs now, like the, the production line jobs are making uh, semiconductors. So you say, okay, I've, you know, I've got production line experience. I've worked around these machines. They give you a job. It's a low, it's a low paying job. And now you're exposed. You're more than likely exposed to some sort of hazardous chemical with, with the bare minimum of training and protective, protective equipment. Um, the trend also, as Silicon Valley starts getting all this money, the trend is for, you're not gonna work for Apple. You're not gonna work for Hewlett Packard directly. You're gonna work for a company that contracts your labor to you know, produce whatever um, microchips for Apple and, and Hewlett Packard. So if you have a problem at your workplace, you get sick, for instance, from the, the hazardous chemicals. Um, you don't have a union. You can't really even appeal to Apple or, or HP because they're going to be like, well, what do we care? We're not your employer. Um, and you can't go, I mean, you can't afford a lawyer, most likely. You can't go to the press because, you know, who the hell cares about some podunk uh, uh, production line, you know, contractor that nobody's ever heard of. Um, so, and then your visa, you know, runs out and you are going back to... Uh, you're going back to Mexico. Um, so that's kind of the, that's, that's a cross section of employment opportunities in Silicon Valley. Meanwhile, rent and housing prices are going through the roof. And then even after the bust, they do not, they, they kind of dip back down and then they shoot up again. So this is, this is what you get from the Silicon Valley economy. And into the 2000s, there's the idea has been to spread this economy throughout the whole country and throughout the whole world. This is this is akin to this is a gold mining operation essentially, right? So like a few people strike it rich, which is a combination of you know you know some some of these guys are 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 bright and some of these guys are you know hard workers, and then the rest of it is just sheer dumb luck, right? Um, and those guys make fantastic amounts of money. And then everybody else, a lot of other people just get absolutely screwed or they make a little bit of money. But the point is that this is, this is very unequal. It's very unstable. You really don't know if, you're, if, you're, if your prospect is going to pan out. And this is, this is exactly what happened. Like in the 90s, nobody, Google just kind of won. There were a bunch of other search engines and nobody really knew what a search engine what I mean, they knew what a search engine was. They did not know how to make money off of a search engine. Facebook did not know how to make money, um, right? So like MySpace failed and, and Friendster failed and, and so on. And Facebook just figured it out. And part of that is just is just dumb luck. Like they had a they had a prospect in in the hills and it happened to produce gold. Um, and there was a lot of hard work that went into it. I'm not going to deny that. But like this is the economy that 
that neoliberal neoliberalism wants to sell to us. If you want a stable job, if you want to work 40 hours a week and go home to your family, and you want to retire at age 65 and have a pension, that's not what Silicon Valley wants for you, and that's not what they want for them. They want this, um, they want this, this boom and bust cycle. They want people to either um, become you know, fabulously wealthy or to wash out. But that's not a good sales pitch, right? So you have to come up with, you have to really, really sell people on the billionaires and like, you know, hey, maybe this could be you, right? You should buy into this because don't you want to be, you know, incredibly wealthy? Well, I mean, you're not going to be Bill Gates. You're not going to be Elon Musk. Like you, you have a better uh, chance of, of actually winning the lottery, which will ruin your life. That's another, another topic. But the point is, um, this, this, so what unions offered, right. And so, so you can't really have to go back to this idea of the HP way, right. You can't really have unions at, at HP. Like that's the way that their incentives are structured is they don't want you to come in and punch a clock. And they're going to reward you for being the type of person that, that doesn't want to just punch a clock and, and collect a paycheck. I just, I, I just want the paycheck. Like, I don't give a shit. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, if I, that's great for those people that want to do that. But a lot of people just have to pay rent to survive and do what they actually care about. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you cannot have... This is a very unstable idea to export to the rest of of the entire economy because most people are going to just become screwed over. They're either going to be exploited or they're going to, you know, risk it all on something that's not going to pan out. And you're going to have a few people and then of course, you know, and then the economy becomes the rest of the economy becomes service industry. You know, everybody is, is serving the few people that have a billion dollars. Um, and that, that is the goal because the people who have billions of dollars are the ones in charge, but really this is not a great system in my, in my humble opinion. Um, but again, yeah, but you have to sell all of these, these, uh, schmucks on, on the idea that's going to make you rich. So you, you talk up this idea of, of starting a company in your garage, you, you talk up, you know, all of this, the great things that Silicon Valley does for the company. Um, you talk about the, you know, how manufacturing is obsolete. That's another thing, by the way. So I mean, this is something that it seems kind of ludicrous when you think about it, but this is something that the Silicon Valley boosters really talk up as like, you know, manufacturing is like, we don't need to worry about that. Everything that like my phone here was created by, yeah, it's a, it's an iPhone 12. Uh, it was created by a person that is the product of somebody's labor yeah, it's, it's, it was an idea at some point and lots of people went in and, and developed, you know, a product that has, that has, you know, um, appealed to, to millions and millions of people, but somebody had to assemble that phone. And in fact, if you look at manufacturing jobs, so, um, 
manufacturing manufacturing jobs in Silicon Valley did not actually go away like people said they did. Um, the number of jobs increased. Manufacturing did become a smaller share of the economy, you know, replaced by tech jobs, administrative jobs, service industry jobs. But you're you're not going to I mean you're always going to have to produce some kind of project product to sell people. Even if it's software, I mean that is somebody's that is somebody's labor, right? So wealth and value continues to come from labor regardless of what neoliberals want to believe. Another thing. So um I've talked about when I talked about the Gilded Age and the railroads, uh, I mentioned Richard White in his really great book, Railroaded. He wrote that at Stanford um, in the, I think it was published in like 2005. So he's writing this during, you know, as, as Silicon Valley is, is, you know, heating and then overheating and, and collapsing. And he's just, he draws all these parallels to railroads. I just I just made an analogy to gold mining. He sees a lot of parallels to railroads and you read that book and it's like, yeah, absolutely. This is a bunch of um it's a big like Silicon Valley. I mean, the the this tech company model largely is a big is a big Ponzi scheme, right? So, a lot of it is attracting funding getting your cut and then not caring about what, you know, happens to the company. Um, and then a, another part of it is another large part of it is you are using your clout and your influence to change labor markets. And this is what we've seen with, with Uber, you know, Uber is not a, Uber is not a tech company. You know what I mean? Like, okay, you have an app, but is that, a, is that what a tech company is? I mean, it, it is part of Silicon Valley because Silicon Valley has become this model of an industry where you are disrupting things. And those things that you're disrupting are actually usually quite good, like um, like uh, cab drivers' unions, right? But but you're using all of, all of your influence. I mean, Uber is, is famously like just bleeding money. They've never, you know, turned a profit. So you have a company that's not even profitable that that like local politicians are, are, are like going crazy for like it's the the monorail from the Simpsons episode. And um, you're 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 doing all that to change the way that that our our economy is structured. And we all we all have to think that that's a good thing because you know these people appear successful and and i mean like and yeah those few people are very successful like the people who are making money off of uber who are not going to suffer when the company fails like yeah that's that's success in its own way but it's going to leave just a huge crater behind um you know like this idea of disruption is more and more people are beginning to realize like this is a terrible idea why are we why are we just disrupting things and it's and it's because we we've been sold this this idea of this bright shiny future this is like this is a new frontier and it's using it's using a lot of the same sales pitches as the railroads it's using you know 
the HP way that was, that was started in 1939. Like this stuff is not as new and shiny as we've been led to believe. It's the same scam, just repackaged in, in new wrapping paper. Um, so I guess, uh, just to like wrap it up. I mean, I, I feel like this is pretty obvious, but like, don't listen to the Silicon Valley grifters. Do not put any any stake into what Elon Musk has to say at all for a second. He's a huge liar. Um, I mean, this this seems this seems apparent to me. But anyway, I hope that this has been informative in the ways that our new, our bright, shiny new economy that everyone in power is trying to impose on us is is a bill of goods. It's just a crock of shit. And, um, I mean, I don't really know how to resist that because it's happening in real time. This is happening just in the present and I'm a historian, so I got nothing for you, but I'm going to come back, um, for one final episode. It's going to be a bit of, it's going to be like our epilogue and, um, we're going to talk, we're going to talk about the the future. We're going to talk about our, our dark, dark future. Anyway, thanks for joining me. And uh, I'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.